Today on Blue 58, let's take a tour of the NFC North, a place that hasn't been quite as friendly for the Packers recently as it has for most of the division's history. How do they figure to stand up against their divisional rivals this year? Blue 58! Hello and welcome to another episode of Blue 58, the one and only podcast to thepowersweep.com. I am your host, John Meerdink. Happy to be with you here yet again. I figure it's about time in the offseason calendar to really start looking ahead to the 2019 season. In part because we are a couple weeks out from training camp and there's not a whole lot else to talk about until the pads really go on. I would rather talk about other teams right now than do the traditional preview stuff that you get at this time of year. We've even done stuff like this in the past. It's mostly focused on the Packers. You go unit by unit through the team, talk about the players you have. That's fine. You can do that. I don't think that's a bad way of going through your offseason content, and we'll probably do something like that eventually. But we've done a lot of that kind of stuff this offseason, so I want to take a few episodes here and look at the other teams the Packers are going to be playing this year. So we'll look through a few teams each episode for the next three or four, four or five, until we get through all of the teams the Packers are going to play this year. This will give us something to look back on when the Packers do play them this year and see how wrong we were for one thing, but just kind of laying down a base of knowledge for another. And as is my traditional style, I like to find answers by asking a lot of questions. So we'll ask four questions of each of these teams, starting with who they were in 2018 Then what was their most notable offensive addition over the offseason? Then what was their most notable defensive addition over the offseason? Then finally, how concerned should we be when the Packers play them this year? The caveat, of course, is that it is July. Welcome to July, by the way. The second caveat is that things are going to change a lot between July and whenever the Packers ultimately play these guys. It's a long season. I think we all understand that. I think there is some value to looking at these teams right now. We're starting with the NFC North for a few reasons. First, these are the teams the Packers are going to play the most this year. It's the teams that they've played the most recently. I think we all understand that. It's also the quickest route to the playoffs. If you win your division, you not only get into the playoffs, you get to host a home playoff game. There are many legitimate criticisms of that setup. I'm not here to talk about that. Like it or not, this is the system we've got, and winning your division gets you into the playoffs. If you want to get into the playoffs, a really good way to do that is to win your division. Winning your division depends in large part on beating the opponents in your division. There is a galaxy brain take for you, of course, sure, but I point that out for a reason. That reason is the Packers have not been very good against the NFC North recently. In fact, they are in a historically bad period in NFC North history, at least as far as the Packers are concerned. Their winning percentage against the NFC North last season was the second worst it's ever been in the division's history. Now, that sounds more dramatic than it is because the NFC North's divisional history only goes back to 2002. It's the NFC Central before that, but you know that. Packers only won 25% of their games against the NFC North last year. I'm counting the Minnesota game as half a win because that's kind of how it factors into the standings anyway. Over the past three years, the Packers have won fewer than 50% of their games against the NFC North. Their winning percentage is 472 against Chicago, Detroit, and Minnesota. That is the lowest it's been over a three-year stretch 
in the history of the NFC North. Almost 20 years. Over the past five years, the Packers have won just 55% of their games against the NFC North. That, too, is the lowest percentage over any five-year span in the history of the NFC North. It's been tough for the Packers recently. They haven't done well against the NFC North in quite a while. In 2016, they won five of their six games, sure, but it's been a downward slope since then. And even the year prior, they only won three of their six games against the NFC North. It's been a down period. I think we all recognize that. And the quickest way for the Packers to get back to the heights we know they can reach is to get back to the top of the NFC North. But to get that, they have to get through 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 three very unique opponents. And those opponents literally start and end the Packers season. Outside of Detroit, but I think you'll forgive that one, one mild oversight here on the part of the schedule makers. In the interest of symmetry, they should have done it this way. Uh, the Packers open the season playing at Chicago and then at home against Minnesota. In a perfect world, they would have had uh, Detroit at home there in week three. They don't, but they do end the season playing at uh, home versus Chicago at Minnesota and then at Detroit. Five of their six division games are at the very beginning and very end of the season. That is noteworthy because if you're trying to either hold off a divisional challenger or make a late run towards the playoffs, it's nice to have some divisional games in there because that's the quickest way to affect the standings. And the Packers will have that opportunity this year, closing out their season with three consecutive NFC North games. That's one of the most recent or most interesting recent revisions the NFL has made to its schedule. You've got flex scheduling, things like that, more Thursday night games, sure. But ending the season with consistent divisional matchups, I think they have it officially. It's the last two weeks of every season. You're going to play at least two of your divisional opponents. The Packers work out this year to have three in a row. That's an interesting tweak. I think that that creates some good drama at the end of the season. Let's talk about those NFC North opponents, starting with the defending NFC North champions, the Chicago Bears. What were they in 2018? Well, that's going to depend on who you ask, of course. If you ask a Bears fan, you point out that they were 12-4 and and just one missed field goal away from heading deeper into the playoffs, into the divisional round. That is fair. Those things are accurate. They were, in fact, 12-4. and They were, in fact, just one missed field goal away from knocking out the Philadelphia Eagles. But it would also be fair, I think, to point out that they were statistical overachievers because of an unusually healthy season. We've cited Football Outsiders' advanced game lost or adjusted game loss, excuse me, a statistic here before. And the Bears ranked very highly in that this year, top five in the league. They're one of the healthiest teams in the league last year, and that really helped them on defense. That helps you on defense in a lot of ways. First, you just have your best players out there, but secondly, you have a lot of continuity. It's easy to play well if you're not having to adjust your lineup constantly to deal with injuries. That's great. It's great to be healthy, but health is a difficult thing to maintain. And a defense in particular is difficult to maintain if you don't have all your healthy players available because you need a lot of good players to maintain an elite defense. And the Bears certainly did have an elite defense in 2018. Not taking any of that away from them. They had a great 2018. Their defense was great in 2018. They figured to be pretty good at the very least again in 2019. But they did benefit from a lot of health. And I think that is fair to point out. This year, their most notable offensive addition throughout the offseason, I think, 
and this I should I should point this out. Most notable doesn't necessarily mean best. It doesn't necessarily mean the most prof or most uh, the the most important. It doesn't necessarily mean the player is going to play the most. It doesn't even necessarily mean the highest paid. It's the it's the player I think is going to be most important to their team's success or most interesting. That's why I called it most notable. For the Bears, I think their most notable offseason offensive addition is Cordero Patterson. And here's why. The Bears have a very interesting wide receiver core. Not necessarily great, either individually or collectively, but very interesting. There's a lot of interesting tools here. If you're an offensive play caller, there's a lot of interesting things you can do. Allen Robinson, Taylor Gabriel, Anthony Miller, Riley Ridley, and now Cordero Patterson. That's a lot of different unique skill sets, and you get, it gives you a lot of room to be flexible and interesting on offense. You can use uh, Anthony Miller or Taylor Gabriel as kind of that gadget slot wide receiver type, doing a lot of different things, lining them up in the backfield, almost the wide receiver version of Tariq Cohen. You can use Cordero Patterson in many of the same ways, except he may be even better as a runner than Gabriel or Miller. We saw that with the Packers last year when the Patriots essentially used him as a running back. He's a big, well-built wide receiver who almost looks like a running back. In fact, there's a case to be made that you might want to just sign him and play him as a running back. He can do some interesting things in the passing game as well from that kind of role. He's also hap- He also happens to be a very, very good kick returner, one of the best kickoff returners of this era. So that adds another interesting wrinkle to an already unusual Chicago Bears offense coming from that Andy Reid sort of branch of the West Coast offense known for its creativity you know Matt Nagy and all of the things that he does if there's anybody who seems to be able or seems like he might be able to do some interesting things with Cordero Patterson it could be Matt Nagy Bill Belichick certainly did now Matt Nagy gets a chance to do so as well their most notable defensive addition to me has to be haha Clinton Dix He's interesting just because of how things played out over the past year or so with both HaHa Clinton Dix and the Packers and also the Bears. The quick recap, though I'm sure you know this, HaHa Clinton Dix started the 2018 season with the Packers, was playing okay for HaHa Clinton Dix, but was traded midseason to the Washington Redskins. Washington quickly became the second team in a single year to give up on HaHa Clinton Dix, letting him walk for nothing. And the Chicago Bears signed him to a very affordable one-year contract. That in and of itself would be interesting, but it's made more notable by the fact that the Packers signed the guy whose place HaHa Clinton Dix is now filling in Chicago. Adrian Amos, of course, now lines up for the Green Bay Packers. I'm not here to discuss the relative merits of HaHa Clinton Dix as opposed to Adrian Amos. I think we'll see that play out on the field this year, so you don't need me to necessarily weigh in here. Plus, we've done that a little bit already on this podcast. But I think that certainly qualifies as a notable addition, and it's certainly going to be an interesting story to watch play out this year. How concerned should we be when the Packers play the Bears this year? On a scale of one to very concerned, I would say probably about an eight. Let's put a little bit higher, a finer point on that. I think the Bears are a little bit scary for the Packers this year and for anybody they play this year for this reason. The Bears strike me as a very high-variance team. They rely a lot on Mitchell Trubisky, who can be good, could also be very bad. Uh, He's a little bit inconsistent as a quarterback. He probably hasn't lived up to his top five draft pick status 
so far. Although I did see a really unusual thing today that says he's one of the betting favorites to win the 2019 NFL MVP. That would be a little bit surprising. Let's not rule it out entirely. Stranger things have happened. But because of their reliance on guys like Mitchell Trubisky, well, Mitchell Trubisky in particular, and because of their heavy reliance on defense, the Bears can go a lot of different ways. So you get one or two guys nicked up on that defense, and suddenly it isn't quite a lead, it's just very good. Well, just having a very good defense doesn't necessarily win a lot of games for you when you're trying to win a game with defense. The same goes for having a quarterback who is not necessarily the most reliable quarterback in the world. Some days he can be a world beater. Other days, he can just about take you out of games. Which Bears team you get seems like it could vary a lot from week to week or over the course of the season, depending on what happens within that team. And that makes them a team that could vary a lot depending on where in the season you play them. That makes them, to me, a little bit scary and makes them a team that I'm not all that excited to play in 2019. Could be tough for the Packers. Could be easy for the Packers. You don't know. And that makes them a little bit scary. Not quite so with the Minnesota Vikings. They also, I would describe as a high-variance team, but not quite in the same way. We'll get to that in a second. First, let's look backwards. Who were the Minnesota Vikings in 2018? In a lot of ways, they were very similar to the Packers. They finished the season 8-7-1, though that should have been 8-8 thanks to the Clay Matthews penalty on Kirk Cousins, which wiped out the Jair Alexander pick and a sure Packers victory. They dealt with a lot of injuries as well in 2018, and they had offensive line issues yet again. It seems to be a recurring thing for the Minnesota Vikings. That's why, to me, their most notable offensive addition this offseason was Garrett Bradbury, the center out of NC State. The Vikings drafted him 18th overall, and if you're taking a center 18th overall, he's either one, really good, or two, you're in a really bad way on the offensive line. In this particular relationship between Minnesota and Garrett Bradbury, it seems like both could be true because he seems like a really solid player. Everywhere you look on this guy, he's described as someone who's going to step into the starting lineup right away and play for a long, long time. And I'm not always sure if drafting a center in the first round is the best allocation of resources in the world, but if you get a starting anything for a decade or more, maybe eight years, maybe seven years, and if he's as good as they say Bradbury could be or may or is going to be, that seems like a pretty common sense pick, especially if you're having issues on the offensive line, which Minnesota has had for quite a while. It's not an exciting pick, but if you've had problems on the offensive line like the Vikings have, crossing one out of those five positions off your list of needs has to feel like something of a relief in Minnesota. Their most notable defensive addition wasn't actually an addition at all, unless you count his brief detour to New York. I'm talking about linebacker Anthony Barr. Even now, this far into his NFL career, I think it's still fair to ask, what is Anthony Barr as a player exactly? He's not really an edge rusher. He's not really an off-the-ball linebacker. You can pretty much just rule out positions that he isn't for sure and try to narrow it down from there. He's not a cornerback. He's not a safety. He's probably not a defensive tackle. Okay? That gets you a list of other things that he could be. It's not really clear what it is from there. We do know he's a super athlete even now, and he can do some wild and crazy and interesting things in the right environment. And I have to wonder if he's at his best in a situation where the defensive coordinator can just afford to get a little bit weird with him. 
And Mike Zimmer is one of those guys. He's a very good defensive coordinator. He's a very good defensive coach. And now Barr is back in Minnesota on a very big contract. That's significant long-term for the Vikings. In the short term, it's probably good they have him back. And it seems like it would have been a fairly significant loss if he'd have gone to New York, though the Vikings did reel him back in. Contract questions aside, I think the Vikings would say they're happier to have him than not have him. So for the time being, they're probably fairly happy paying the contract that they are paying to him, If it does, even if it does put him in a little bit of a salary crunch here in the short term. And that's probably as much Kirk Cousins' fault as anything. And by extension, extension, Rick Spielman's fault, but that's an entirely different issue. So how concerned should the Packers be when they play them this year? How concerned should we be about the Packers playing them, I guess is, is another way to put that. If you're using the same scale that you use to rate the Bears between one and very concerned, I would say about a six. You know, fairly concerned, one to ten, but not as concerned as the Bears. The Vikings are a little bit like the Bears in that at their best, they have a strong defense and on offense, a quarterback whose main attribute is not screwing it up for you, or the main thing you're asking from that quarterback rather is not screwing it up for you. That has been Kirk Cousins' hallmark, I guess. He's safe, reliable. He's like an extremely rich man's version of Alex Smith. I mean, he does some things better than Alex Smith, but he, you know, he may make some more boneheaded decisions. That gets you into that high-variance team category. Though they don't seem as likely as the Bears to just rise up and really hammer you or just completely bottom out. So they may be a little bit more towards the middle. Their highs may not be as high as the Bears. Their lows may not be as low. In July, that seems about like where they are. I think that puts them in the position of just being scary because you don't know quite what you're going to get from them, but not quite as scary as the Bears because they're not quite as elite on defense as the Bears are. At least they weren't in 2018. Moving on to Detroit. Let's finish out the NFC North here. What were the Detroit Lions in 2018? To me, looking back, it seems like a team that had all the worst traits of the Patriots with none of their winning. They had a surly head coach. They had a general weirdness. They won a game or two or three that you may not have quite expected them to win, but ultimately they were just not quite there. Summing up that general weirdness, how about Matt Patricia criticizing a reporter's posture last season in the midst of a 6-10 and campaign? This exchange transcribed by the Detroit Free Press. The reporter asked, what do you think makes this move, just some random roster move, why do you think this move makes your franchise better? Patricia says, oh, well, you know, do me a favor and just kind of sit up. Just like have a little respect for the process. Every day you come and ask me questions and you're just kind of like, you know, give me this. The reporter responds, I'm sitting, like asking questions. Patricia says, I'm just asking to be a little bit more respectful of this process. The reporter says, that's fine. And Matt Patricia says, ask me a question professionally and I'll answer it for you. So the reporter just asks the exact same question again. I don't know why a guy who dresses like Matt Patricia and has facial hair like Matt Patricia and has criminal allegations against them like Matt Patricia would bother criticizing anybody else in their personal life or how they do business. So maybe it's better to just take care of the football parts of it and let everybody else worry about like fashion and personal appearance and clothes and things like that. Just a thought. This season's most, this offseason, excuse me, most 
notable offensive addition in Detroit has to be TJ Hawkinson. We have to talk about the idea of drafting a tight end eighth overall. It's a pretty exclusive comp- or a pretty exclusive group if you're talking about tight ends drafted in the top 10. Dating back to 1990, there have only been six, two of them, oddly enough, in Detroit. You've got TJ Hawkinson and Eric Ebron, for sure. But going back further through history, Vernon Davis, Kellen Winslow, Ricky Dudley, and Kyle Bradley. Brady, excuse me. Three of those five who have actually played in the NFL ultimately made a Pro Bowl. Eric Ebron didn't make it in Detroit. He made it with the Colts for what it's worth, but it still seems like a pretty good return on your investment. And for that reason, I've softened a little bit on the idea of it being a completely terrible idea to take a tight end super high in the draft. I've read some research recently that says that it may not be a terrible idea. And if you can get a guy who makes a Pro Bowl, that may not be the worst thing in the world. Obviously, that's a pretty good return on your investment. But my question concerning tight ends and taking that high is this. What is the return on investment for a Pro Bowl tight end versus like just a regular anything else? Would you rather have a Pro Bowl tight end or just like a starting caliber, maybe above average starting caliber defensive back, edge rusher, or offensive lineman? If the question is between a good to very good but not Pro Bowl level defensive back, edge rusher, or lineman, or a Pro Bowl tight end, I think I might take each of those other three options ahead of a tight end. That's nothing against tight ends, and I probably like tight ends more than just about anybody else. But in the modern NFL, it seems like a tight end, even a Pro Bowl level tight end, is mostly just a wide receiver who is slower than other wide receivers, combined with an offensive lineman who can't block quite as well as other offensive linemen. If you get a Rob Rob Gronkowski, I almost called him Robert Gronkowski. Who in the world, other than his mom and his life, has ever called him Robert Gronkowski? What am I thinking? Anyway, if you can get a Rob Gronkowski and you can pencil him into your starting lineup for 8-10 years playing at a high level where he is both a good receiver and a good blocker, that's great. But there's only been one Rob, Robert, Gronkowski. Do you really want to roll the dice on getting another one of those in the draft? And he wasn't even taken in the top 10 or the first round for that matter. I would rather spend that high of a draft pick on a position that's more important than tight end, even if you can get pretty good tight ends at that level of the draft. In Detroit, the most notable defensive addition has to be Trey Flowers. And that's for money alone. Of all of these offseason additions, he's the one that comes down the most to money, to me. Five years and $90 million is a lot of money. And it's worth exploring the pros and cons a little bit of that contract. The good, he's not quite yet 26. He'll be there before the season gets too far along. But as of right now, not quite 26 years old. He's also got good but not great size for the versatile edge rusher type. I mean, thinking about the guys that have big impacts on defense, in 2019, at least among the front seven, it's those guys that can move all around the formation, can rush as an edge rusher, can rush inside, can rush as a stand-up pass rusher. You like all those things, and Trey Flowers has the body type to do something like that. Now, the bad is he had a career high for sacks last year. And normally you'd say, that's great. We want to get a guy who's showing what he can do, feel good about our investment, but his career high was just seven and a half sacks. Eh. 
you're shelling out $90 million, you're hoping a guy's probably going to be able to do a little bit better than that. I know sacks aren't everything, but even if you look at the number that we like, production ratio, he wasn't super great there either. It was only an even one for the course of his NFL career so far. One being about average, being about the the baseline level of what you want to look at for like a starting caliber uh, pass rusher type. That's not great. And it certainly doesn't feel like a $90 million great kind of investment. You also worry about guys who peaked with the Patriots. I mean, Bill Belichick gets more out of his guys than just about anybody ever has. Can he do that same thing in Detroit, even if he is playing for Matt Patricia? It seems like Matt Patricia might be the guy who knows how to use him. He did it in uh, New England, of course. But Matt Patricia is not Bill Belichick. Nobody is Bill Belichick. You also worry a little bit because he's not a great athlete either. He hasn't ever tested like a super great athlete. And do you really want to bet the farm on a guy who hasn't been super productive and doesn't have athletic testing traits and is playing outside of an environment where he's had most of his success in his career so far? Those seem like three pretty significant drawbacks if you stack them all together. At least, at the very least, there are fair questions to ask when you're shelling out $90 million for one player. How concerned should we be about the Detroit Lions when the Packers play them this year? Worth pointing out at this point that the Packers have lost four straight games against the Detroit Lions. Strange, but true. Gambler's fallacy says that they're due. John says, I agree with the gambler's fallacy. It seems like sooner or later they're going to get the Lions figured out, and it also seems like you can't really count on Matt Patricia. It seemed like there was a fair chance he could get fired in the middle of his first season in Detroit last year. It was that bad. How much better is it going to be in year two with a year older Matt Stafford, who was revealed this offseason, played with a pretty significant back injury last year. They didn't really add a whole lot on offense outside of TJ Hawkinson, and we know that tight ends don't necessarily make a huge impact as rookies. That seems like a fair question to ask. I'm not super worried about the Lions. And I say that knowing full well that the Lions have handled the Packers pretty easily over the past couple of years. But if things go like I think we're thinking they will for the Packers this year, improvement on both on defense and just a healthier Aaron Rodgers on offense, that seems like it should be enough to handle the Lions. That could be completely wrong, but I like my chances, which is exactly what a gambler would say when he's falling victim to the gambler's fallacy. That's all I've got for you on this episode. Thank you so much for listening. Next time, we will be back with episode number 200. That is hard to believe. And I am very appreciative of everybody who's taken the time to get us to this point by listening to each and every one of our episodes so far. If you liked what you've heard and want to help us keep these things going, the best way to support us is by rating and reviewing on iTunes. Or if you have the option, wherever you happen to listen to this program. It helps more people find the show. If you want to take your support to the next level, the most straightforward to do that is to donate a dollar per month at patreon.com slash the power sweep. A dollar a month is enough to offset our hosting costs for this podcast, and it goes a long way towards helping us build the content 
We know you love both here and on thepowersweep.com. And don't forget to check out our shirts, sweatshirts, t-shirts, all those great things by clicking the shop link at thepowersweep.com. If you've got an idea for the show or want to say hi, reach us at thepowersweep.com on Facebook and Twitter or by emailing thepowersweep1959 at gmail.com. We do appreciate everybody who takes the time to reach out. Every thought, every bit of feedback, every question you ask helps us make Blue 58 and the Power Sweep better which continues to further our mission of helping everyone become smarter Packers fans. And as I always say, smarter Packers fans are better Packers fans, and better Packers fans are what we all want to be. I'm your host, John Meerdink. We will see you next time on Blue 58.